Welcome back to the Global Digital Banker. My name is Adele Grissoff and this is RFI Group's Insight Back podcast focused on key trends, thought leadership and best practice within the fast-growing and dynamic world of digital banking. The episode this week focuses on the profitability to banks for payments within messaging apps, overcoming barriers to digital usage and how companies can encourage new habits for consumers to drive digital engagement. Our guests include Marie Flamont, Chief Marketing Officer at Circle, Dr. Matthew McDougall, President, Australia-China Daegu Association, and Charles Green, CEO at RFI Group. Charles Green shares his insights on the future of digital payments, the challenges and barriers to future uptake, and how digital payment customers are going to be the key to driving bank profitability in the future. Thank you, Charles, for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So, really exciting. Yesterday, RFI Group released the PSD2 study, which explored consumers and SMEs' responses and perceptions around PSD2 and its potential implications. And I know we have some upcoming episodes that are going to be focused more specifically on the findings from that. But can you give us a sort of overview, a quick overview of what are the main trends coming out of that? Absolutely. I think what's really interesting about the PSD2 study, Sarah, was we literally went into fields with that the same day that Mark Zuckerberg was testifying uh, in Congress uh, about issues around privacy and data, which is obviously key to open banking and PSD2. Um, and what we've seen come out of that is not a reversal uh, of, a, of, a, of an existing trend, but rather uh, we've seen uh, a trend that we'd already picked up uh, at the back end of 2017 around comfort with privacy, comfort with data, comfort with digital only. Uh, that trend has been accentuated, accelerated and increased uh, by what happened with Cambridge Analytica and that's playing through in the PSD2 results. So from 2015, we saw the appetite for digital only providers in banking um, increase in every single market, 2015, 2016, second half of 2016, uh, and it really peaked in 2017. In the second half of 2017, we, we saw the hype starting to come off the boil. Another way of looking at it is we saw a rationalization, as you always see with new technologies, there's a huge amount of excitement, there's a huge lack of understanding. Uh, as app-only offerings started to appear in the market, um, firstly, the excitement starts to, to rationalize into a genuine appetite. And also that sort of lack of understanding actually translates into a genuine understanding of what the opportunity might be. Um, so we saw, you know, it increasing steadily for two and a half years up to about 75%. So three out of four consumers globally were uh, comfortable using a digital only provider. That's reduced down to 63%. So yes, it's come off in every market. But still, 63% of consumers globally are comfortable using a digital provider. It's still a huge opportunity uh, for the players in certain product spaces. Mm, absolutely, it's massive. And where are we seeing in terms of banking behaviours that digital-only appetite manifesting itself? Um, so payments, followed by savings, followed by investment, followed by borrowing, followed by by foreign exchanges, you get into more complex products. Um, but payments is the number one area uh, where consumers feel comfortable using a a digital only provider. Yes, it's come off from 6% to 55%, but still over half of consumers would be more than comfortable um, using a digital only provider. In terms of actual usage, has there been a massive shift? No, up until now, we haven't really seen that translating through into actual usage. So yes, there's a, there's a significant appetite, 
Um, but at the moment, usage is still, I mean, usage across all fintechs uh, is still relatively low. If you count PayPal as a fintech, uh, then it's jumps by about 15% globally, but it's not really translating into usage yet. And there's probably a number re- of reasons for that. Why is payments and being up to date with the payment innovations important to the, to the sort of main bank relationship? So payments is absolutely crucial for the main bank relationship. I mean, the main bank relationship is really important because you know, it's where consumers hold most of their products. So it's the greatest, greatest amount of unique cross-sell. It's where they hold most of their money. So the greatest share of, um, share of wallet. It's where they're stickiest. It's where they're happiest. It's where they're most satisfied. It's where they're most likely to advocate. So the main bank relationship um, is really, really important. Um, and when you look at where customers hold their primary credit card and their primary debit card, if both their primary debit card and their primary credit card are with their main bank, then they are significantly more likely, jumping from 60% to 75%, uh, to be satisfied with their main bank. Um, uh, they almost have a 300% increase in their net promoter score from 13 uh, to 33 if they have their primary debit card and their primary credit card there um, and their stickiness is much greater so about 65% are, you know, I have no intention to switch um, if they don't have their cards with their main bank that jumps to over 80% if they have both their debit card and their credit card with their main bank so it's really really significant if the payments proposition is past that main bank relationship it drives satisfaction it drives retention mm-hmm. uh, it drives stickiness it drives loyalty so it's really really important are we seeing more uptake of digital-only offerings in places where contactless has been, you know, pretty ubiquitous? You'd expect so. Contactless intuitively is a great training ground for a mobile wallet. You know, you get your card, you it's tap same it. Process, it's yeah. exactly the same <laughs> process. It's just a different form factor. So you would think the markets where contactless has been really successful, Australia, Canada, Singapore, uh, the UK, France, those would be the exact markets. Those are the first markets where contactless really grew successfully. So those should be the markets where you have a, a consumer population that's trained up in how to use contactless and they just need to switch their card for their wallet. And therefore, those should be the markets where there's the most appetite and potential for mobile wallet usage. Counterintuitively, what we see is the exact opposite. Um, so the markets where uh, there is least appeal for a mobile wallet are the UK, uh, Canada, Singapore and Australia. The exact four markets where contactless cards have been so successful. And that's really interesting. In those four markets, there is appeal for mobile wallets. There is the least appeal though compared to the other markets. And what, what that uh, leads us to think is that whilst they are used to using contactless cards, whilst they're trained in the action of taking a card out and tapping it and, and exiting a store, the value proposition uh, that mobile wallets present yet is not sufficiently differentiated to make it appealing. So yes, cash usage is declining. Yes, payment, there's an appetite for um, digital-only payments. Yes, there are markets uh, such as those uh, where contactless trained up the consumer but at the moment, the value proposition is not differentiated or not exciting enough to make a mobile wallet more appealing than using the contactless card that they're using at the moment. What are some of the barriers then? In, with any new payments proposition, uh, it comes down to security, speed and convenience. And security or trust is initially a barrier. Uh, there's generally a lack of awareness and two things happen. As the awareness around the security issues and the trust issues start to dissipate, uh, the speed and the convenience create a combined to create a value proposition that actually overcomes that barrier. Um, so in those four markets, um, about one in four uh, actually uh, trust mobile wallet technology. So even though they trust contactless, 
the trust or the, uh, or the security issues around mobile wallet technology is not there. Uh, and when it looks, um, you know, who would you like to provide um, the mobile wallet uh, across almost every market, about 75% of people globally would prefer their mobile wallet to be offered by a bank rather than a third party like Apple Pay or Samsung Pay or Google Pay um, via Android. When you ask them when, security. Uh, they trust the bank, that they think the bank is secure. Conversely, when you ask those that prefer a third party like Apple or, or Samsung or Google, um, it's because they think it's more widely accepted. Uh, because when you walk into a store, you see that enormous yeah. silver Apple logo um, and you forget that you can actually use Visa or MasterCard um, bank cards there as well. So um, trust and security are an issue at the moment. Um, if you look at the growth of contactless over the last sort of three to five years, over the next sort of three to four years, we would expect trust and security um, to diminish and the, and the speed and convenience and the value proposition uh, to be compelling enough that it starts to differentiate itself. But if you want to see uh, a quick take up uh, of digital only payments, then there are probably some other areas you need to look at. Yeah, so let's talk more about that then. What are some of the other solutions that sort of marry up the experience and the trust for consumers around the world? Yeah, I always like to think about space rockets uh, when I'm asked about this one. So um, okay. <laughs> if you take space rockets, you had the V2 rocket, uh, you had the Saturn V, then you had the Apollo, then you had the space shuttle, then you had the space station. Um, each rocket uh, followed the principles to design that, that the new version of the rockets was an improvement on the previous principles um, of design. And then um, along came Elon Musk uh, with SpaceX. And what SpaceX did was they looked at it and said, if, if we took everything we now know about technology and design and, uh, and rocket science uh, and got a blank piece of paper, what would the rocket look like? Would it be a pre, you know, an iteration of a previous version or would it look completely different? And what they were able to do was reduce, well, firstly, they were able to, able to create reusable rockets and they were able to reduce the cost of building the rocket by about 95%. And if you think about that from a point of view of banking, so banking was in the branch, then banking went to the call center, then banking went online, then you were able to do more and more things online. Then banking went to your mobile phone, then banking went to via a browser, then banking went to a, an app on a mobile phone or a tablet. But fundamentally, whilst each uh, channel is an improvement uh, of a previous iteration, you still have to go to the bank to do your banking, even if it's an app on your mobile phone. Mm -hmm. What we've seen coming out of China and, and now out of Singapore and Hong Kong as well, um, with Alipay and WeChat is they've, they've done an Elon Musk with SpaceX and they've really taken the, turned the whole thing on its head and they, they effectively changed it so that the bank comes to you when you want to transact. So if you look at um, China Merchant Bank and what they've done with WeChat, effectively when you're in WeChat, when you want to check your balance, pay off your credit card, apply for a personal loan, look for a branch, uh, make payments, uh, have some queries, uh, look about, find out about merchant discounts, you don't need to leave WeChat. While you're in WeChat, the bank comes to you, CMB, and allows you uh, to transact. So uh, rather than treating it as an extension of a, of a current digital banking experience, it wanted to create a, a single self-contained channel where you can do your banking. And I think making payments within messaging apps is an area where there's significant consumer appetite different across different regions and potential profitability for a bank. Can you talk more about those regional differences? Asia, obviously, the driving force, but what are we seeing in some other areas? Yes, yeah, so you can't fundamentally take things that work in Asia and just drop them into Western economies. One of the things that we do is we look at mobile 
uh, phone usage uh, throughout the day, looking at you know, how much time is spent on social media, how much time messaging, how much time shopping online, how much time, if any, doing banking-related tasks. And we split that out by various demographics, by age demographics, by technology-enabled demographics. So you know, starting with your vocal innovators to your early adopters, you know, your vocal innovators being the people who are in sleeping bags outside an Apple store the night yeah. before a launch, uh, <laughs> through to uh, your, your laggards and your Luddites who are the very last people to take up technology. And when you look at what, what do people spend t- time doing on their mobile phones on a daily basis across Asia and across Europe, you see some key differences. So across Asia, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a vocal innovator or a laggard, you spend probably um, about 30% of your time messaging. And it doesn't matter if you're 18 years old or 65 years old, across the entire market, about 30% of the day is spent messaging. But when you look at Australia, Canada, the UK, you know, the traditional Western economies, Yes, there's a significant amount of time spent messaging by millennials and by the, you know, the vocal innovators and the early adopters. But as you move through to the hesitant movers, to the laggards, the 55-year-olds, the 65-year-olds, that diminishes and drops off really quickly to less than 5%. So if you're thinking about launching anything to do with banking and messaging, you've got a very different uh, level of receptiveness uh, in the Asian markets as you do um, in the Western markets. And, and that's something that needs to be considered. And you spoke earlier about uh, the sort of profitability of payments and the, the relation between payments to the main banking relationship. Do you have insights on more specifically messaging app payments and their potential profitability and benefits for the institutions that are offering them? Yeah, and that's probably the final piece of the puzzle. So mm-hmm. you have a significant appetite for digital-only apps, especially in the payment space. Cash usage is declining, uh, but at the moment, that's not translating into take-up of new payment technologies. However, the payment relationship is absolutely crucial to the main bank relationship. It drives stickiness, loyalty, satisfaction, retention. And in the markets where there's contactless, there actually needs to be a much clearer value proposition just for traditional mobile wallet usage. So there is a significant appetite uh, for making payments while you're in the messaging app. Uh, In in any market, the lowest number of consumers is 50%. It goes up to 80% in some markets. And then when you look at the profitability, because obviously that's, as you say, uh, quite an expensive thing to do. If you look at advocacy, if you look at net promoter score, those that want to make payments in a messaging app have double the net promoter score of those that don't. Uh, Their satisfaction increases from 65% to 75%. Their stickiness is the same. Their current cross-sell holdings jump from 3.5 to about four unique products. Um, their future product holdings, so 75% of them are likely to take out a product in the next six months, as opposed to only 50%. And it also jumps from they're going to take out one product to they're going to take out closest to 1.6, 1.7 products. So when you look at net promoter score, satisfaction, stickiness or loyalty, current cross-sell holdings, future cross-sell take-up, you can see that customers who want to and who are willing to make in-app payments are significantly more profitable for a bank than those that don't. So there's a strong business case there. Mm. Well, thank you. That's a great overview of big global payment trends that are going on. And as we said earlier, we are keeping a close watch on the impacts of PSD2 and the European market and the impacts that's going to make. So thanks so much for sharing that with us. Marie Flamont discusses how they're leveraging new technologies to change payments transactions, their approach to altering the perception of money from a user perspective, and how Circle are creating new behaviours for consumers to move beyond traditional payment solutions. 
Hi, Marie. Why don't you start by giving us a quick overview of Circle and the journey that you've been on so far? So at Circle, what we do is in essence very simple. We leverage new technologies such as blockchain, artificial intelligence, and machine learning to fundamentally change the way money can move around. And so how are you actively encouraging consumers to use Circle for payments, transactions, for investing and all the other products that you have today? You know, if we talk, for example, uh, specifically about Circle Pay and in Europe, I think one thing that has been fascinating for us is that we've had to create a habit and basically a new behavior for people, right? Mm. Um, and a lot of times, you know, people were asking, well, so who are your competitors? And actually, you know, our competitors are not other fintech or other tech companies. It's actually still cash and bank transfers. And how do you create that new habit of having a map that is super, super simple for people to use? We've done a bunch of different things, but things that we've actually proactively worked with are having programs such as student ambassadors, finding the right type of partnerships. Also, because because Circle is all based on like the moment when you need to actually send or receive money. If you go after that use case and this moment when you actually need to use it, then it's actually much much more efficient. Mm. It's interesting you say your your main competitors is cash and the traditional payment solutions. RFI Group research shows that the main barriers to digital is ease of accessibility, security, and trust, which I think is what consumers relate to some of those older forms of payments. So how are you looking to overcome those? Has that been a struggle for you? Definitely, you know, not being a known brand, you need to be known, right? And if you're not a known brand and you need to handle people's cash, well, you have a lot of trust to instill into people. Mm. And we've done that actually also in several different ways. But the fact, for example, that you know we're regulated by the FCA, we work with Barclays. So when your money is held at Circle, it's actually held in a bank account like Barclays. We've put a lot of security in our apps. So for example, your app is actually cured with Touch ID. You can also put limits into it. So we've actually done a lot of things to reassure consumers. Mm. But the thing that has been most important, I would say, for Circle Pay is the fact that if you use the app and if your friends use it. And I've actually, they've had a wonderful experience with it because the one thing that comes back always from Circle is that how easy it is to use. Mm. And so do you think Circle has, has gone a way to change the way that money is perceived from a user perspective? Absolutely. I think, you know, there is still in a lot of countries this taboo around money, right? Mm. And I would say, you know, sometimes also they're like, oh my God, that person owes me five bucks, but I don't really know how to ask them back, right? <laughs> and actually, we create this new possibility that you can do it with an image, you can do that with a small message, and you can keep reminding people. So enabling that, enabling the small amounts that sometimes you would just give up on. Mm. And actually, you shouldn't, because there is this super, super simple way to do that. Would you ask someone their bank details for three pounds? No. Mm. Would you actually say, hey, you know what? This app, it's super easy. And now that we have it, by the way, it's one pound, it's two pound, and you can keep doing that. So definitely. Who are you seeing as your kind of main competitors in the market? You've spoken about the, the more traditional payment methods that you're having to kind of overcome and convince users that this is a way forward. But you've got a number of new entrants in this space. What is Circle doing to differentiate itself from these players? Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. The space is crowded. There's more and more people coming to it, which, you know, to be also very positive and look at the bright side means that there is a real category and there is a real need to solve the problem, mm. right? which is fantastic. We've been saying that. We've been talking about social payments for years. And actually, yes, there is definitely a real category there. A couple of things we do to be very different. One, our app is extremely simple to use and no matter how many people I ask the number one feedback that comes is the simplicity of it so 
On the UX side of things, we strive for being very, very simple, for making sure that people basically have no friction whatsoever when they want to use that product. That's mm-hmm. more a UX side of thing, but we're very big believers in that. On the backend side of things, something that very few people would actually see is the technology that we use. All the risk and fraud algorithms that we've developed in-house that enable us to provide, again, the best possible customer experience, but to make sure that things are seamless, but at the same time, extremely, extremely secure, and also very good from a business perspective for Circle, so that we're actually not losing money. Mm. Right. So all those things are, you know, from the front end, from the user experience, from the way the company has been built, has enabled us to actually scale across many, many markets. I remember when we spoke at Money 2020 last year, you mentioned around how the more people playing in this space, the more people are aware that it is a space. Consumers become more aware of this as an option if there is more physical presence of it around. So that's kind of worked to your benefit, having been in this market from the beginning, develop that technology and then sort of riding that wave, which I thought was quite an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'm a big believer then. When we started, we were talking about social payments and people were like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and actually now it's, it's a full category. And also, you know, when we started, we were talking about blockchain and people were like, oh my God, what is that? And now everybody is actually talking about that as a super cool technology, which it is, honestly. And it's going to revolutionize much, much more beyond finance. Mm. Well, so let's talk a bit more broadly then around sort of payments trends. I think that's a really fantastic overview overview of Circle and so many great things going on. But what would you say are your main predictions for payments and sort of spending behavior over the next 12 months? What should we be looking out for? I think there is a lot of talk around cashless and that's definitely happening, right? Some countries faster than others. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Nordics, countries like Sweden, Norway, all that cash is disappearing at, at super, super speed. But no, um, no doubt that this is going to happen in many more countries across Europe and across the world. Another trend is also this idea of interoperability, right? So it's not the world doesn't need to have only one solution that will be global. But what if actually you're in a world where you have Circle Pay and that can interoperate with a WeChat or with a Paytm, right? That would be like interoperating between a Gmail and interoperating between a Yahoo email account. Mm. And you can still send each other an email, right? So I think those are the trends that we're going to keep seeing. Uh, happening and definitely much more to happen also on the blockchain front. Can you talk more a little bit about that on the blockchain front? Absolutely. You know, if we look at the blockchain and all the things that are happening, it really reminds us of what has been happening in the internet. There's this extremely exciting technology that a lot of super brains are putting their heads on and saying, okay, this is something very powerful for the world. It's about decentralization. It's about actually having systems that are more secure, that are faster. What is going to happen with that? And in 2017, we've started seeing concrete applications that are actually very exciting. Crypto kitties, I'm sorry, but the fact of being able to own your own digital kitty and that's yours is a very big step forward, mm. right? Because it means that this is a digital asset that could be yours. So things such as what's actually now happening in the media world of how can you make sure that an artist who's taking a picture will be rewarded over time, those are things that are going to be also enabled by the technology and underlying technology such as blockchain. And verification, of course, that absolutely. it is by that artist exactly. for the buyer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I think many more domains are being touched and will be touched by blockchain. Mm. It doesn't necessarily have to be within payments, but would you name an organization that you look to as a real leader in digital innovation? I look very, very closely at new applications that are leveraging blockchain. I think something very big there is Mm. about to happen. And so whether it's actually this idea of integrating 
different applications that are blockchain and putting back in customers' hands whether you want to create your own wallet, call it, with different services, some being linked to your identity, some being linked to the ownership of your flat, some being linked to more banking type services. Mm. I think that trend is very interesting. Mm. Well, that's fantastic. That's a really great overview. Thank you so much for joining us on the episode today, Mike. Thank you. Dr. Matthew McDougall explains how to build consumer trust for payments within messaging apps, shares case studies from Asia, and the changing perceptions of money from a user perspective. Thank you so much for coming on the RFI podcast, Dr. McDougall. I thought we'd just start with why we have seen or perhaps why we're seeing such success when it comes to payments and transactions via messaging apps over those more traditional banking apps out there. Well, I guess when I look at apps in the banking sector, I tend to think about WeChat because that's an environment I'm very familiar with, having lived in China for, for good on 14 years. And I guess what's happened is WeChat didn't start off as a banking or a transactional-based mechanism. They started off really as a communications between known friends, and that really created a, a high degree of trust with the platform. And so when WeChat evolved its platform to allowing transactions, it already had a, you know, a trusted position with the, with the circle. So it was a natural thing for someone who was using WeChat for their you know, daily communications to actually then start using it for their uh, banking transactions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just on that, the cleverest things that they did and, and other people in China have copied is they created this thing called red envelopes or red packets. And in China, traditionally at uh, Chinese New Year, they have this idea of giving a red envelope to your family members as a tradition. And so what WeChat did that was very clever is they created this idea of having a digital red envelope that allowed them to give this to each other in terms of friends. And last year, I think it was about $3.4 billion of money exchanged in this format of red envelopes. So not only did they make it ubiquitous in the Chinese culture of giving a digital form of that, it actually then extended from not just giving red envelopes at festive areas, but to using WeChat as a way to pay for things from taxis to pizzas to potatoes on the street. So when you think about payment mechanisms, you don't even think about a bank. You think about using WeChat because you use it in everyday society for everyday things. It was trust with the application that led into that massive take-up. I love that you've raised trust. Uh, some of our researchers do show that some of the major barriers when it comes to digital uptake, so using messaging apps, is ease of accessibility, security, and as you've pointed out, trust. Hmm. How do you think messaging apps really answer some of these barriers? Well, I think you know, Chinese as a, as a culture is very unique and again, quite different to how consumers use messaging apps in the West. But certainly for Chinese, they already have a, a degree of skepticism about certain platforms because of the state control uh, in China. But when it came to WeChat, for example, people didn't use it to read news. It wasn't their sort of point to go and see it. They actually used it to talk to mum and dad. They used it as an email substitute with their colleagues at work. So they already trusted the platform in that respect. And, and so I think for the Chinese consumer, to actually use that platform for payments, it was a no-brainer. They already knew the platform. They already trusted the platform. It already had a good reputation locally with its large community. And you've got to remember in China, 780 million people use WeChat. So it's not as if you can sort of put your hand up and say, I don't believe in it, I don't trust it, because it's almost a no-brainer because everyone's using it. And so as it extends its functionalities, people will just use it without question. Mm. How do you think messaging apps change the way that perhaps money is perceived from a user perspective? And well, I, I guess it takes a lot of the sort of banks and the, the traditional players out of the equation, doesn't it? Because you're just using your WeChat and it, you don't really know, you know, it's 
money being transferred from one to the other, but you're not even thinking about the bank that that money is sitting in. Banks have a, a degree of anxiety because not only is it you know between two Chinese in China exchanging money, we can change money between Chinese living overseas. So, for example, there's 70 million WeChat accounts outside China, which basically means that someone in China can exchange foreign currency with someone living outside China as seamlessly as they could inside China. So it's cross-border money exchange as well as internal domestic exchange. And you know, if you go back even a couple of years, you'd go to Beijing or Shanghai for a, a visit and you'd clearly need money and cash to get around. Today, when I go to China, I do not need cash at all. I can survive completely on WePay for the whole time I'm in China mm-hmm. because I can use it for everything. That's in the space mm-hmm. of over just over a year in the context of Australia. Can you imagine not using cash for a week? Well, it's impossible. And yet in China, they've gone from society only a few years ago where it was cash dependent to a society that's now cash independent. And so clearly, if you're a Western bank looking at that you know, massive consumer shift and technological shift, well, you'd have reason to be concerned. Yeah, so interesting. You've been chatting a lot about WePay there. And, you know, I'd love to talk about sort of WePay, WeChat, Alipay. Interestingly, your point there that 70 million WePay accounts are active outside of China. Mm. How do WePay, WeChat, Alipay continue to differentiate themselves and stand out so that they can really be at the front of the pack? The single factor is you've got over 440 million outbound Chinese travellers. And when you've got a population that large going overseas, they look for convenience. And so in this country, uh, in Australia, you've actually got hotels, you've got shops actually taking uh, Chinese RMB via WePay or China Union Pay or Alipay. Mm. So what we're finding is that the retailers, the tourism destinations recognize that Chinese inbound travelers don't want to pay with Australian dollars. They actually want to pay in a currency that they're familiar with. And so that's led to the Chinese coming here and not even getting Australian dollars. They can use these payment mechanisms. It's amazing how the consumer has adopted it and it's amazing how the merchant, you know, the merchants are embracing it. It's a, it is a no-brainer, as you say. What are your predictions for the Asia-Pacific for the next 12 months? If we think about payment trends, obviously I assume we will see this continuing, but as you say, so much has happened in a year. So can we expect to see so much more in another year? Yeah, look, I think we're going to see the advent in automated retail. So in China, for example, it's quite normal for kiosks to dispense product and goods without humans. I think you're going to see much more of that. I think you're going to see uh, a number of kiosks and things take Chinese Alipay and WePay uh, forms of payment. So as Australians are used to beginning, WePay will become adopted by even some Australians because we're seeing more Australian accounts. There's, you know, there's 3 million WePay accounts in Australia. So my prediction is for this market is that WePay and Alipay will become ubiquitous with a lot of merchants who today don't know those names, but in the next 12 months certainly will be adopting them. And I think you know if you look at some of the organisations embracing it, it's going to become more normal, more common. Absolutely. Finishing up soon, and I always love this question, if you could see, sort of look at any organization in the world who you think are doing things really quite incredibly when it comes to innovation in digital, who would it be and and why? I think some of the most innovative companies in the world are Chinese companies like China Telecom, Air China, um, a couple of the insurance companies. And I don't say it flippantly. I look to these companies and what they've done is they've completely embraced technology in the way they deal with consumers. And again, we may say, yes, they're using WeChat in very unique ways, but we've now seen them embrace things like WeChat for customer service or WeChat for HR and, and employment. So they've used technology in a way that's not just changed 
their business model, it's actually changed the way consumers are expecting to be helped and delivered. When I look to some of the domestic companies here in Australia, I think there's just a massive open landscape. No one has really taken that high ground and embraced it with, with two hands from my perspective. I would like to say ourselves, digosales.com is doing a great job in cross-border payments using WeChat and those forms. Mm. But I, I think in this market, no one stands out as the leader of the pack. I think that's a mantle that someone's going to pick up. <laughs> that's exciting then. It's, it's one to watch for the next year. Absolutely. Listen, thank you so much for coming on the show. So great to talk to you. Absolutely loved your insight there. Thank you. My, my pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the episode this week. To view the show notes from this episode, head to globaldigitalbanker.com. To get in touch with us, check out our Instagram, Global Digital Banker, Twitter at GDB Podcast, or on Facebook under Global Digital Banker Podcast. If you're interested in being a part of the show or would like to let us know what you think of this episode, email us at gdbpodcast at rfigroup.com.